Welcome back to the podcast. This is our next episode on New Netherland. In the last episode, we covered the period of time that was like the Wild West for the colony. When Dutch traders just scrambled to the Hudson and all the nearby rivers and were competing with one another for pelts, the prices went up and down. Then a group of these traders got together and they actually got a monopoly from the States General, the government of the Netherlands. And for a couple years, they were able to control the trade and then they lost their monopoly. And there were dark, sidious forces at, at work to create this scenario, to, to make this happen. And what is going on behind the scenes is that in addition to having a Dutch East India Company, the government and very wealthy people in the Netherlands had been working to create a Dutch West India Company. And that meant the New Netherland Company that had the monopoly had to go. But between the one company losing its monopoly, the New Netherland Company, and the West India Company coming into control of New Netherland, there was a couple more chaotic years, four or five years of chaos, of which we have very little records for. We know there were certain characters trading up and down the Hudson River, like Eelkins, who we mentioned before, Christensen, and May. Those are the three big names, Eelkins, Christensen, and May. And they worked for the New Netherland Company, they were there before the New Netherland Company, and they were there afterwards. They were all over the place. Some of these guys will make the cut and be part of the new company, and some of them won't. And we might see them pop their heads back into our story later to exact a little revenge. In our episode about the Dutch, we talked about the Dutch East India Company. How it was the biggest company in the world, it was massive, and all these discoveries in the West were small potatoes to such a large company. When the company funded Henry Hudson's mission, he was supposed to go east. Instead, he went west. Well, they don't have a charter for those lands in the west. And it was considered such a small, insignificant area of the earth with nothing of value that the Dutch East India Company didn't care to extend their charter. That's what opened up the west and the Hudson River especially for all these random Dutch traders to come through trading for pelts. Well, some of the wealthier investors in the Dutch East India Company, they smelled an opportunity. And so they got together and they started planning out a Dutch West India Company. So instead of sharing into one big pot of the Dutch East India Company, maybe they can be the leaders and the main investors in this new company and make a lot more profits. It's, it's almost like a spin-off, but it's, it's more like a, a large law firm and a couple of the lawyers get together and then they break off and start their own law firm. It's, it's more like that. When the idea kind of coalesced and came together, the Dutch West India Company caused a huge buzz it was like the East India Company was Facebook or MySpace, one of the very early social media sites that just blew up and nobody expected it to. Then all of a sudden, Twitter comes along, and that's the West India Company. It shows up on the scene, and everybody jumps on board because they think that's the next big thing. So they get tons of investors, including the States General, the government of the Netherlands, invests in the company. Now here, in our time, depending on where you're listening to this, the government typically doesn't own part of your company, but this is a long time ago and the rules are a lot different. Now the States General are, is going to invest a minority amount into the company and the Dutch West India Company will at times be used as the military of the Netherlands, especially in terms of naval power in the New World. The historian Oliver Rink, he actually calls the Dutch West India Company an instrument of war, especially against Spain. So ships from the Dutch West India Company, they're going to be out privateering in the Caribbean, stealing Portuguese and Spanish ships and all the gold and slaves and silver on board. And it's no coincidence that this company came together at the end of that 12-year truce that the Netherlands had with Spain. So this is going to reignite the 80 years war. And the Dutch came together and they thought, how can we defend against Spain, one, and how can we make some money off of it? 
So we're actually putting together a company, the Dutch West India Company, as a way to prosper off the war. And you might be saying to yourself, well, what does this have to do with beaver pelts and the Hudson River and the Delaware River and the Connecticut River? What does this have to do with the area of the earth that I care about and the reason I'm listening to this podcast? Nothing. The company, believe it or not, spent very little time thinking about New Netherland. It was just one possession, a possession that sometimes made money and a lot of the times lost money. It was a part of the company that was tucked away and they thought very little about. And that's going to explain a lot of the actions we see from the company in upcoming episodes. So top down, the West India Company, what did it look like? At the top was what was called the Council of 19. The 19 men, the 19... You can translate it a number of different ways. There was 19 different directors at the top. Why have 19 men on this council? Why not an even 20? 19 is an odd number. You lower your chances of getting a tie, which could only happen in this case unless somebody was abstaining or somebody was absent for a vote. Of those 19, some of them were from the government because the government put in some money so they get some say on the council. Also, Holland had the most representatives. Zealand had a fair amount too, and the other states had a couple. The Amsterdam Chamber, working out of Holland, of course, had eight members on the council out of the 19. So if you get the one from the states general and you get the eight from Amsterdam alone, you have the majority interest of the company. That's how big Amsterdam was in terms of influence and size and power compared to the rest of the Netherlands. Being a Dutch company, both partially owned by the government and existing within that nation, the states general would ultimately have power over the company in all the ways that, let's say, the executive branch of the United States has power over companies today, and probably more so. Under the 19, you're going to have different chambers, and those chambers are going to be based out of different areas in the Netherlands, different states. Now, the one that concerns New Netherland the most is going to be the Amsterdam Chamber in Holland. At a certain point, a little forward in our timeline, the the Dutch West India Company just hands New Netherland over to the Amsterdam Chamber and just says, you take care of this. We don't really care what you do with it. This means that for most of our history moving forward, New Netherland wasn't even under the eye of the Dutch West India Company as a whole. It was under one of their little sections, the Amsterdam Chamber, probably their biggest section, but little in comparison to the whole. So this would be like if the uh, whole company were a Walmart. Well, the control over the New Netherlands section was just handed off to the manager of groceries. That's it. The general manager of the store day-to-day doesn't want to hear about it. Already to yourself, you're thinking, wow, this doesn't sound like a company I've ever really heard of. It's odd how the government's mixed in with it, and they're half military, really. I mean, they're going to have boats of war and everything else. Well, it gets even weirder, because each chamber in each different state, they're allowed to compete with one another to some degree. So this isn't even like one cohesive company. This is a lot like a sports league. This is the NFL, where yes, you have at the top, you have the NFL, but you have all these teams underneath that can compete with one another. The secret here being is you can't just start your own NFL team and just start playing everybody else. You have to get into the club first. So this company, as much as it's like a company as we understand it today, it's more like a trust or again, some sort of league where you have a bunch of different players all working together and keeping out any competition. But inside of the league, they can compete with each other. So New Netherlands sits in this position. You have the States General at the top. That's the government of the New Netherlands. Then you have the Council of 19. They're running the, they're running the whole company. Then you have chambers underneath. There are five total chambers. New Netherland is going to be controlled by the Amsterdam Chamber after 1629 or so. And then under that, under the Amsterdam Chamber, you have the New Netherland Committee. So you have to go for... It's, it's deep in there. And again... 
It's so far down the chain of command because it's not important to the company at all. And this is a company whose entire existence wasn't even important to another company. So that's how insignificant New Netherland was to the Dutch themselves during most, most of their golden age period. So a dirty little secret in American history, which I brought up before, is that we as Americans or Canadians or people who live in North and South America, we think of world history and we think, oh my God, Columbus discovered the new world. The old world must have flipped and it must have been all over the news and it must have been a big deal and what was going on over there and all the explorations. They must have been eating that up. No, not really. It wasn't really an important thing as far as every, you know, everyday life. People weren't thinking about it all the time. So yeah, New Netherland was not that important to the Netherlands. All right, if I bored you with the structure of this company, I'm going to start getting into the operations, where they show up, what they do, actual things going on. The large shareholders in the company, many of whom already had missions for Beaver Fur up and down the Hudson for a decade now, they immediately started sending private missions there. Even though there was this company and there were rules and the company was supposed to have a monopoly over it, they figured, hey, I own a big chunk of this company. I'm going to send my guys in there and I'm going to get my cut myself without having to share with anybody else and I'm gonna get away with it because I'm paying for the guy to go in there against the monopoly and I'm paying the guy who's supposed to enforce the monopoly so we're gonna see immediately all the big wigs just start sending their own guys in there to get pelts and this never ends one of the weaknesses in the company in the colony is the fact that everyone's out for themselves completely and you could even say New York City and New York State the culture to even to this day is very much individualistic in this sense but like I promised, the focus of the West India Company had nothing to do with New Netherland for most of the time. They were tasked with colonizing the New World and taking, especially, taking things from the Spanish and the Portuguese. Now, colonization to the Dutch, as we've talked about in other episodes, does not mean colonization as we know it, as far as the English were concerned. So in school, you learn about the English coming over in boats full of people who are in crowded London or out in the country and being persecuted for their religion and all that kind of stuff. Not in the Dutch case. The Dutch went to places, let's say, in Southeast Asia where they were selling cinnamon or something. And they would fill their boats with cinnamon and say, hey, great, guys. You know, we love trading cinnamon with you guys. We're going to send some boats back here and hopefully you have more cinnamon for us. At least at first, the Dutch were very good about just leaving everybody alone. The only interest they had was trade and they weren't going to disrupt how that trade was conducted. So they'd show up on the Hudson, people would fill their boats with pelts, and they'd say, here, here's some metal trinkets, it's a good deal, let's go home. They're not looking to overturn governments, they're not looking to create settlements, they're looking to trade with what was already there. The real focus of the company, at least early on, was on taking parts of Brazil and controlling the trade coming out of Brazil, which is a long way from New Netherland. So the company, as early as 1623, 24, shows up in Brazil and starts to erode away the Portuguese authorities and assert itself there. This was easy to do. The same types of companies, private companies in Amsterdam that had been controlling trade on the Hudson had also already been down in Brazil. So when the West India Company comes together, the Portuguese authorities just kind of fall apart and Brazil is opened up to trade with the Netherlands. The Dutch want to control these parts of Brazil because there's sugar plantations there. And everyone loves sugar to this day. Sugar's awesome. And so they want to control the sugar trade. And the sugar trade is worth a lot more than a bunch of beaver pelts. So a lot of the focus, at least for the first 20 or so years of the company's existence, was on Brazil. The company also had a salt monopoly on Punta Diaria. Believe it or not, salt used to be a very big commodity. Salt's a, a, an essential nutrient. And if you don't have it, 
you're going to pay a lot to get it. And it was actually the Zeeland Chamber that controlled Dutch Guyana, which was probably the most successful colony that they would have and, and grew to be quite large, larger than the Guyana that you, you would be used to seeing on a map today. Or the modern-day nation of Suriname. And then privateering, the company would get tons and tons of money just by pillaging Spanish and Portuguese ships. And none of this has anything to do with New Netherland. Again, the company just saw that as some kind of backwater investment. They didn't really think about it very much. The government saw the company as a vehicle of war against the Spanish and Portuguese, and we could see how they're showing up, taking over colonies, taking over islands, disrupting the trade, uh, looting the ships. And New Netherland, inside of this larger story, at best serves as a way station, somewhere where the ships can stop off before making their trip back to the old world. Later on, we'll see New Netherland was thought to be used, hey, we might be able to grow some food there, and that food will be used to help fuel our activities down in the Caribbean and South America. But other than that, New Netherland is just that part of the store, so to speak, that nobody goes into anymore. The company was actually happy with just setting up trading posts, collecting furs, and bringing them back to the old world. Some investors knew, hey, wait a minute, another European power eventually is just going to move in here, either with colonists or with warships and take over the trade. So part of the company was happy to just get the money while it's good, and then when we get taken over, just, you know, cut our losses and get out of there. Now, the North American continent was still pretty empty of Europeans. You had the Spanish way down in Florida. You had the Jamestown colony in Virginia, what would become Virginia. And then you have... Who do we have? We have the, the Pilgrims, so to speak, the Separatists, the Brownists, living in Plymouth in their illegal colony. And then you have the French up north of New Netherland. But altogether, if you add up all the Europeans from those different colonies who were living in North America at the time, I would hazard a guess in the year 1624 or so, less than 2,000. Maybe less than 1,000. Officially less than 1,000. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw that out there, and you guys can criticize me later for it. Imagine yourself on the North American continent, anywhere north of Mexico, which I didn't bring up before, but yeah, Mexico is going to be full of Europeans. Anything north of Mexico, a thousand competitors somewhere on that continent. A thousand people can get lost very quickly. The Dutch, nonetheless, are going to have to stake their claim, because again, they're between an English colony to the south and an English colony to the east, and the French to the north. So they're going to place trading posts at the front of all these rivers that they trade on. So the Hudson River, which they're going to call the North River, which some New Yorkers still call today. The Connecticut River and the Delaware River. The big inland trading post, of course, is going to be Fort Orange, which is located somewhere near where Fort Nassau was, but it's not going to be on an island in the middle of the Hudson River where it's going to flood every year. And so Fort Orange is going to be around for a while. In fact, parts of it are still around today. The archaeologist Paul Huey, I saw him speak at the New York State Library about eight months ago, and he discovered Fort Orange back in the early 70s, I think. And he had to argue with a whole bunch of people and state his case, but they found it basically right under where they were going to build 787. And he was able to excavate, excavate? Excavate portions of it. Just a, just a small little strip of it, but it's still there. The company already had some permanent employees working at these trading posts, but we're talking about a handful of people at each location. Let's say the English want to move in with a colony. Well, a handful of guys aren't going to do anything about it. The Dutch realize we have to show habitation if we want to make this a legitimate colony. If we have towns full of people there, the English can't say, well, you're not really using the land. You're not really living there. A trader we mentioned previously, who's been working up and down the Hudson and the coast for a while, Cornelius May, the Dutch West India Company hire him to set up the colony. 
put the skeleton into place. So he's the one who puts the, the posts and the forts up at the front of all these rivers. He's the one that decides where Fort Orange is going to go because he's traded there before. He knows that's a reliable place where the Native Americans know to go if they want to trade their furs. Now the company has to figure out who are we going to put in New Netherland? Who's actually, who are we going to convince to move to this area for which we only have one or two maps of? And that are full of people who we know nothing about and could be potentially dangerous. Well, they had a couple choices we brought up in a previous episode that the Pilgrims, who eventually are going to settle at Plymouth in 1620, were in the Netherlands for a very long time. And there were still some Pilgrims in the Netherlands living there. And part of the plan early on was to settle Pilgrims, or what were they? They were called Separatists, let's face it. Were to settle Separatists in New Netherland. They'd be now Dutch citizens in New Netherland. So in a weird alternative reality, the Pilgrims settle in Manhattan. But that doesn't happen. Now there's another group of people with a very similar story to what we've heard about with Pilgrims and, you know, religious freedom and all that stuff you hear about in elementary school. There's a group called the Huguenots. And you've probably heard that term before, and you said, what is that, kind of, some kind of space thing? A Huguenot would be a French Protestant. And France is extremely Catholic, and the government is extremely Catholic. The Catholic Church is just an arm of their government. And they're going to try to purge Protestants constantly. And so these Protestants will be running out of France, and they're going to be called Huguenots. And they're going to settle in parts of Germany. They're going to settle in parts of the Low Countries, especially the Netherlands. And so the Huguenots, over time just generally assimilate into whatever culture they're part of. Whereas the pilgrims in the Netherlands were like, oh no, I don't want to become Dutch, let's let's move somewhere else. The Huguenots kind of dissolved into everything else. And that's why you're not going to find towns full of Huguenots today, because they moved to the Netherlands, and after a couple years, they changed their last name to something more Dutch-sounding, and now we just consider them Dutch after so many centuries of intermarrying. The one I can think of is the, um, the Vetter family, of which there's lots of members in America. Vetter was originally something far more French-sounding, but they moved to the Netherlands as French Huguenots, and after a couple generations, they were Dutch. Then there were another group of people called the Walloon, which still exists, they still exist today. The nation of Belgium is where they live for the most part. Belgium, you've never met a Belgian in your life. It's not an ethnic group. Belgium is primarily made out of two different ethnic groups. The Walloon, who live in the south, and they're, they have a French dialect that they speak. Alright, it's not exactly French, but it's pretty close, because it's very closely related. It's a Latin language. And then in the north, you have the Flemish, who speak a language that's very closely related to Dutch. So Belgium is just a hodgepodge nation, really. The first boatfuls of immigrants to New Netherlands will not be Dutch. They will be Walloon. Now, the Walloon people at the time would have lived in what was called the Spanish Netherlands, which is mostly what we call Belgium today. It was controlled by Spain, and Spain was undergoing what we call the Spanish Inquisition at this time, persecuting Protestants and Jewish people and anyone who didn't fit the Catholic mold. Now, inside of that Walloon community, you had Protestants. Much like in France, you had Protestants who we, we called Huguenots. The Walloons also had communities of Protestants, and they would try to escape the Spanish Netherlands, and that's how they ended up in what we call the Netherlands. This is the group that will be the first couple boatloads of settlers to New Netherland. Right now, the Netherlands are in a golden age. So it's rare to find people who want to leave the Netherlands. The Walloon community not really wanting to integrate with the Dutch were one of the rare groups who were willing to leave. So part of the reason why New Netherland becomes so diverse is because you couldn't find any Dutch people to live there. Well, you could. You could find a couple. So you had a supplement from other groups. And the first big ethnic group to settle in New Netherland after the Native Americans is actually going to be the Walloons. 
And honestly, a lot of these Walloon families, they want to leave New Netherland as soon as they get the opportunity. The historical record shows that a lot of them are looking to leave quickly. Although we, some of the earliest families in the United States that we know of were of these Walloon families. So a couple of them did uh, stay behind here. Who do we have? The Trow family, the Trico family, and the DeForests, I believe, were among the, the Walloon families who stuck around and were part of New Netherland and later New York history, New Jersey history. And let's go to another alternative reality. These Walloon families, whatever community they were, they at one point petitioned the, the crown of England to settle in the Virginia colony or one of the English colonies in North America. So again, in some alternative reality, the Pilgrims are in New Netherland and then the Walloons are in New England. This shows you the desperation that the Dutch West India Company had. They needed to just have warm bodies in the colony. They certainly weren't picky and they they even didn't want certain types of people to show up there who were particularly skilled. They didn't want anybody there who was involved in the textile industry making anything because the colony was to serve to bring raw resources back to the Netherlands. They didn't want a hat maker in Manhattan or at Fort Orange. They wanted somebody there to farm, somebody there to hold a gun, somebody there to trade, bring the stuff back to the Netherlands, make the mother country rich. So textile workers were actually banned from coming to the colony for a long time. As we discussed in a previous episode, several nations had competing claims to the entire east coast of North America. The Dutch, by putting people at the front of these rivers, not only were they protecting the trade going up and down those rivers, they were creating a spread, basically in all of the middle colonies that the English would call them later on, creating a spread of this is what we control. Now we have the right of first settlement. So they can say, we hired Henry Hudson, we know he was English. But we hired him, he explored this area, we have the right to it because we were the first to explore it. Next, we are the first to settle people there permanently. Now we have the right of first settlement. This was all about legitimizing New Netherland as a real colony and not a piece of somebody else's colony. Another thing the Dutch did, which the English basically almost never did, is that the Dutch actually bought the land from Native Americans. They didn't go in and conquer, they didn't steal, they tried to come up with written documents with these Native American leaders to say that they had a legitimate claim to these areas. Now, there are a lot of problems with this. One, the English especially did not recognize these claims because they argued that Native Americans don't live correctly. They don't live a civilized man. They don't use the land correctly. Therefore, they can't possibly be possessors of that land. Therefore, they can't possibly sell you that land. The Dutch actually gave the Native Americans a lot more dignity in saying, no, that these Native Americans live here and we're going to make a deal with them so that we can live here also. Of course, we know now that Native Americans had a very different sense of land ownership than Europeans did. Europeans thought, well, I can give you something and then you can give me the land in compensation and that's the end of that. Well, in the Native American world, land was not just given away without any sort of string attached to it. There was a sense of reciprocity and gift giving. If one tribe wanted to move into an area and they talked to another tribe about doing so, that now the two tribes are starting to bond with one another. They're creating a chain or a link between them. And so it's understood that the first tribe did not abandon their claim to that land, but now both tribes are living closer together, both in a geographic sense and in the sense that the tribes are starting to merge with one another, create a union with one another. So it's like you live in a house, so you can never really sell that house, but somebody can come and rent part of it if they want, or somebody can marry into your family and live in there if you want. And then the only other way to get land is to actually legitimately conquer an area, go in there, push the people out, and now say it's yours. 
But this idea of me peacefully selling a piece of land to another person, then I vacate it completely, was not really in the Native American experience. Not yet, anyway. That being said, in defense of the English argument that Native Americans were not legitimate people who could sell land, uh, there, there are no leaders in the Native American government hierarchy who would have the authority to do that, to sell land to somebody else. Think about it. So we, in our Haudenosaunee episode, we talked about sachems and chiefs and what their role was, what the clan's roles were. There was no individual who actually has the power to sell land to somebody else on behalf of their tribe as a whole. This might sound odd and foreign to you. What do you mean there was no leaders who would have the ability to sell land? Well, again, it never happened, so there would be nobody there who would have that power in the legal sense, as far as the Haudenosaunee were concerned, or the Mohegan or any other groups of people. But it's not that foreign. We had a very similar problem under our current constitution. Uh, President Thomas Jefferson, he bought the Louisiana Purchase. He bought it from Napoleon in France. Well, there's nothing in the constitution saying a president can buy land for a country. So we had the same situation where every now and then, this happens all the time, the government has to expand its role to deal with a new situation. And we're going to see the Native Americans here are going to start learning what it means to a European to own land. And the Native Americans are going to adapt to that new meaning. So the Dutch West India Company, they're going to pay for the land. They're going to do their very best to have the best relations with the natives. And they're going to put large groups of people at the front of these rivers and then up the Hudson River at Fort Orange where you're going to get most of those furs coming in. Hopefully these settlers will start growing food to feed themselves and then have a little food to export or support the ships that are coming through on their way to plunder in the Caribbean. This idea they ended up going through with with the Walloon families was kind of a compromise because you had one camp of the company who was like let's just operate in the trading posts until somebody else moves in and takes it over. And then you had another camp that was saying well geez we have this huge chunk of land now let's make little feudal states let's like make little lordships where where all of the wealthy investors can carve out their own little empire wouldn't that sound great and both ideas fell through and they came to this middle agreement let's operating trading posts and plant some families to grow some food cornelius may he gets these 30 walloon families and he spreads them out along the coast imagine that 30 families in what would be you know new jersey all the way through connecticut and all the way up to Albany, New York. 30 families, that's your entire colony. And 18 of them are up at Fort Orange. So as you can, that's that's the biggest city in New Netherland at the time, biggest town, biggest settlement. There is no New York City yet, no New Amsterdam, no Manhattan settlement. Fort Orange is the big center. These settlers had certain obligations. Of course, they were supposed to be there and keep the English out. They were also supposed to cultivate the land and they were given out land depending on how big their family was. And if you farm it for six years, the company would just give it to you for free. Of course, the Walloons, they're also part of the Low Countries. They're used to being near water, as well as are the Dutch and all the trading posts. And so all these farms and all these communities develop around rivers. The Walloons were also tasked with finding out more about the Native Americans and finding if there was any gold or silver. Because again, this is the New World, which had a reputation for being full of gold and silver based on what the ships, the Spanish ships were bringing back to the Old World. But as people would find out later on, North America and the northern part of North America doesn't have nearly as much gold mined or in the mountains as we see in what is now Latin America. Very quickly, the company sets up a monosopy, which basically means they're the single buyer. Okay, monopoly, you're the single seller, you're the only one with the commodity. And a monosopy, you're the only one buying. 
So, uh, to just give you a modern example, there are certain parts that go into iPhones that are made in China, and Apple is the only one buying those things. So the manufacturer has to suffer under Apple's monosopy to buy those parts. So if the company goes, hey, I want them cheaper, you gotta make them cheaper or you're not gonna sell any. The Dutch West India Company are gonna have a monosopy on buying from the natives first. Now that's just in theory, as we covered already, some of the investors in this company are running their own private operations. Yeah, I'll make some money off the legitimate company, but I can sneak a few furs out the back door and those will be my own and I don't have to cut it in with anybody else's. There's a lot of shady stuff going on by people who are just legitimate owners of this company. It's, it's a really corrupt system. And that brings us to our next director of New Netherlands. So first we have Cornelius May, sets everything up wonderfully, gets everything going. He's supposing there'll be more people to kind of reinforce the structure he set up. May is not fired. We don't know exactly how he was removed from his position. Maybe it was understood that he would set it up and then he'd go a separate way. But we see that a new director is hired and he shows up on the scene 1625. His name is Willem Verholst. And as far as we know, he'd never been to the colony before. Not really sure what he did before this. My sneaking suspicion, and it might be confirmed out there because I haven't seen every single record, is that he was probably related to somebody high up in the company. We see this a lot with the Dutch West India Company, where they're put, somebody's screwball nephew is put in charge of New Netherland. Because again, New Netherland is the backwater no one's paying attention to. So you have that idiot son, well, we're going to put the idiot son in charge of that corner that no one's looking at. Maybe he'll earn some money for himself. Maybe he'll get himself a pension in a couple years. Who knows? So Willem Verhulst shows up. And the company at the time had a, a sort of council, a kind of a democratic system in the colony. There were colonists who were part of a council. And then Verhulst would be the head of that council. And that was the government operating inside of New Netherland. Of course, this was all underneath the States General, and then the 19, and then the Amsterdam Chamber, and then the New Netherland Committee. Then you finally have representative government of some form happening in the colony, which gets greater with time. And under Verhulst, this nice little structure and colony set up by May, who'd been spending the last couple decades going up and down the colony and getting to know the Native Americans and helping to make the purchases. Verhulst, in the period of less than a year, causes everything to crumble. He's remembered in history as a huge failure, and maybe unduly, maybe some of the fault is on the new colony, or the colonists, or something Cornelius May did, or something the Native Americans did, but everything starts to fall apart almost immediately under his watch. The records indicate that Verhulst stole from the company, embezzled funds, was probably running furs for himself, just lining his own pockets. It's known that the colonists almost overwhelmingly, maybe unanimously hated him. He very quickly loses control of nearly everything. The Walloons start to spread out on their own. Some of them get scared and they run. We don't actually know if all of the Walloons were accounted for when, when, this, when the dust settles here. Because someone's going to come along and collect everybody. But everyone starts to scatter out. People are starving. Nothing's set up. There's no communication. Everybody hates this guy. Everything's falling apart. And in the year 1626, the Mohegan who lived in the Albany area and were probably the number one trading partner at Fort Orange, the Mohegan come to the fort and they ask the Dutch traders there and the Walloons living in the community. They ask them, hey, we have these enemies to the west of us. You guys have firearms. We don't. We would like your help because we're having a partnership here. We have a trading relationship. We would like your help in attacking this tribe of people who are coming into our territory. They're not far from here now. 
we need your help. Since there was absolutely no leadership coming from Verhulst, the commander of Fort Orange, who received these Mohegan emissaries, last name Van Crickenbeek, Van Crickenbeek says, yeah, we're gonna help you out. Him and six guys, they go out with the Mohegans on a war path to intercept the Mohawks. And guess what? The Mohawks aren't that far behind them. The Mohawk actually catch up with the Mohegan and the Dutch not too far from Fort Orange. Basically under what is now Lincoln Park in Albany, they intercept them. And even though the Dutch have firearms, the Mohawk win. They kill a bunch of Mohegan and they kill four out of six of the Dutch soldiers. For some reason, the Mohawk are not scared of firearms anymore like we saw in a previous episode. We're going to get to that in an upcoming episode. The Dutch wouldn't know what they just did, but now they just allied themselves against the Mohawk, who of course are in this league with four other tribes. Now we have a leader who doesn't want to do anything, stealing from the company, families that are seemingly disappearing, spreading out, joining Native American tribes. We don't know what's happening to all these Walloon families. They're not all accounted for. And now you have a small band of Dutch traders crossing hairs with this huge Native American confederacy. Of course, the Dutch couldn't have known that they just did that. So this this is the apocalypse right now for New Netherland. Everything is very quickly falling apart, and it's been a year or two. So the image I want to leave you with is the looming threat of the Native American tribes descending upon Fort Orange and Verhulst, whose own colony and own council decided to banish him from the colony. And until they had the ability to do so, they place him under house arrest. You have their leader stuck in his house. You have angry natives all around. You have people going missing. I'm going to leave you right here. This is where the episode ends. We're going to end on this low point. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. Thank you for listening.